about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him. Before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Hi everyone, I'm Mick. I'm going to be reading from the book of 1 John, right near the very end of the Bible. Uh, God's word to some Christians in the first century and to us in the 21st century. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Well, we made it. Uh, We made it through eight weeks of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Some of you will be rejoicing that we have finished a difficult book that circles the same conclusion, that things are meaningless under the sun, and you're looking forward to something maybe fresher and new. 
for others among you, uh, you've been writing copious notes. I've particularly enjoyed chatting with people who perhaps are new to church and exploring, and have just found kind of fascinating insights and, and even liberating insights to hear from the Bible that the world is gritty and messy. That's been good for some of us to wrestle with. Whatever your story is, I'm glad you're with us tonight in the building or online as we look to God's Word and, and sort of plumb the kind of the riches of His Word that we might understand what it is to be wise and to find meaning in this world. Now, as I started the series uh, eight weeks ago, I asked you to mind the gap. Mind the gap between the is and the ought, because both Ecclesiastes and 2020 has shown us just how big that gap is. Kind of this, the is, how things are, really messy. You know, the ground falls out from underneath us. We've been reminded in Ecclesiastes that death, time, chance uh, eats away at the good things in this world. And for as much as you are wise and are doing good things, sometimes the ground just falls out from underneath you. And 2020 is that, right? For all our hopes and dreams, hasn't quite worked out like we thought it would. And yet we know in our heart of hearts, the, the Ecclesiastes teacher says we've got eternity written on our hearts, that there is so much more to the suffering and injustices and the brokenness of this world. And so we'd hold on to how things ought to be. We are hopeful creatures. And yet the question is, how do we make sense of these two things? How do we live out wisdom between the is and the ought? And as the Ecclesiastes teacher has kind of plumbed that tension, he keeps saying, Hevel, which is Hebrew for meaningless. I mean, there it is, right at the beginning, at the end of his, uh, his kind of um, collection of wisdom and verse 8 of chapter 12, as much as it was at the very beginning from chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, the teacher says, everything is meaningless. And I keep saying, it's not just kind of that there is no meaning, it's that meaning has escaped you. And I've kind of found it helpful over the last month, couple of months or so, particularly when my kids kind of just, you know, disappoint me, frustrate me, or just, you know, you hit the wall, you just go, hevel. (laughs) There is a liberation from just acknowledging that you're not in control, that actually this world is messy. And rather than utter a swear word, hevel seems appropriate. It's been liberating. But what I found fascinating is that the teacher of Ecclesiastes has kind of always seemed to have followed up his observations of Hevel in the world with, he didn't say it in Latin, but essentially carpe diem, that is, seize the day. Has anyone seen the Dead Poet Society? Yes. It's interesting, that that is very Ecclesiastes, because as as we look at some of the things, the topics that the teacher has covered, I'll just skip across to death since I mentioned, uh, just off the cuff there, that movie. The Ecclesiastes teacher has said, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes us all. And uh, Robin Williams in that movie, I can't remember his character's name, he makes the boys of that school look at the photos of boys of the past and says, they're just like you, but now they're fertilizing daffodils. I mean, it's a joyful image, right? So he therefore says, you might as well live extraordinary lives. Carpe diem. That's the same thing the teacher has been saying here. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head in oil. If this world is going to meet in the same ends, we're all going to die. We might as well seize the moment. 
And so he said the same thing for pretty much every other topic. As he exposes riches, we never have enough. We lose our riches through misfortune and we depart naked from this world. So what? Carpe diem. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in a toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. Time. Remember that sermon where it was kind of, we feel like we're just going round and round, up and down through different seasons of good and bad. He says this, making this observation about the seasons, he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time, which sounds good, but then he says, he's also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God is mysterious. I don't understand what part of the, the cycle I'm on, and it's frustrating. So what? I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction. Do you see the rhythm? Make an observation about the world. It's messy, hevel, therefore, carpe diem. And this, you know, that's good. You want to be able to seize the moment as best as possible. But we need a bigger picture. And what I find fascinating about these two things held together is that between them, there actually grows a fear. And I think 2020 has shown us that because as much as I love the phrase, don't waste a good crisis, crikey, at this point of the year, you just go, I'm tired. (laughs) I can't carpe diem anymore. I'm running out of puff. And so grows this fear of how much longer can we keep doing this? Or maybe you're trying to seize the day and you've been doing that for a long time and you start to realize, actually, this is not enough. You might even ask the question, have I mislived? As liberating as Havel is, you might be asking deeper questions about what you're missing out on, what you're pursuing, and trying to get a bigger frame for the world and your place in it. As one author says, you might realize that you've made a lot of money, but you didn't grow rich in the things that matter. You might have gained letters after your name only to discover that intelligence is not wisdom. Or as Jesus says, you might be seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding. Between Havel and Kadiem, there is a growing sense of fear that fills us. And the reason why I want to tap into this is because fear is the very conclusion that the teacher drives us towards. Not just the teacher the frame narrator, as we'll see shortly. I don't know if you noticed the kind of the change in voice. Once we get to verse 9, we read, not only was the teacher wise. So we have this kind of, this sum up, this wrap up, as we delivered an epilogue, as it were. And as he brings to us the conclusion of the matter to fear God, I wonder if we might just kind of drill down to a few of those voices, voices that we, the word, sorry, that we might understand how this book finishes, that we might be able to apply it to our lives as we come before God. He says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Now, sometimes I feel like, was the teacher wise? There's times where he says, uh, I despised life. That doesn't sound like wisdom. There are times where he actually, he really owns, I sought out wisdom, but it escaped me. But that was his project, to actually establish the meaning and wisdom in life as much as he could see under the sun. And he completed that project. 
for all philosophy and wisdom, is seeking to pursue that end. But he concludes that to say that you cannot grasp it, you cannot seize it, Hevel. And in that classical sense of wisdom, he's actually really honest and true, as gritty as it is, and in that sense, he is wise. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm actually grateful that he's done the hard work for us. If you're exploring tonight the meaning of life, this book has been for you so that you don't have to go and do all the homework and the research and the exploration because from his kingly perspective and from all the kingly resources he had available, this teacher concluded after searching through all things that there is no meaning that you can grasp. You cannot get on top of this life. Verse 10, the teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true even if they were hard words. They were true words. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. And these words have definitely been spurring at points. A goad is kind of the pointy end of the, of the rod of a shepherd used to kind of spur the sheep in a particular direction. It gets the job done, but it isn't particularly pleasant. And these words have have, have brought to our attention things we didn't really want to think about at times. And they've been, uh, they've been hard to hear, and yet they have been good for us to hear, that we might live a wise life, and that we might not be naive to the brokenness of this world. And he says this, be warned, my son. And so we get kind of a bit of a picture here that the one who's giving us the epilogue is using all of the teacher's wisdom to teach a new generation, maybe even his own son, that they might not be naive, that they might understand how the world works and therefore be wiser for it. Be warned, he says, of adding anything in addition to these words, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. So don't go read up on all of Greek philosophy to try and find a way around this. That's been done. Listen to these words and be careful if you're going to add to them. And now all that has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep His commandments. How do you feel about that being the conclusion of this book? To fear God and keep His commandments. Some of us might shudder a little bit at the prospect of fearing God And particularly as a pastor and a preacher here, I'm sensitive to the fact that it would be easy for me to preach fear and terror and evoke shame, guilt and fear in you. And yet, we're not unaccustomed to this idea because fear God has been used seven times already through Ecclesiastes. The teacher has actually uh, been terrified, as it were, by who God is and has encouraged us to fear Him. Chapter 3, when he's talking about the cycles of time, he says, God does this that you might fear Him. And in that sense, he's, the teacher doesn't understand the mysteriousness of God. He doesn't understand where He is in the sovereign plan of God, and He feels toyed with at a point. So He says, fear God. And as I think about how the teacher saw God, I think three things are on display. That God is the Creator, that's how chapter 12 began. That He is sovereign and all-powerful, and that He's the Judge. And when you hold those three things together, it is right to actually feel 
terrified by the prospect of God's bigness and who we are before Him. I mean, as this chapter finishes with, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And if the prospect of us being open towards outsiders and exposed to those around us, our our fellow brothers and sisters, how much more terrifying is it to consider the prospect that the God of the universe might penetrate into your very heart and see everything inside of you? In that sense, it is entirely appropriate to be terrified by God. But the fear of God is a, is a complex and extraordinary category that the Bible uses quite a lot. The other thing we see in the fear of God is the idea of being brought to awe. Because as you ponder who you are and who God is, does it not establish a sense of wonder? A sense of kind of, you be quiet now and listen, because God is God and we are who we are. Julia Baird wrote a book at the end of last year called Phosphorescence. I don't know if you've come across it. It's subtitled something like Finding Awe in Dark Places. And I thought, oh, she's written a 2020 book. No, she read it last year. Maybe she knew something was happening. But in that book, she explores the idea of awe. And she refers to even church architecture, much like this one. When we sit in a building like this, And when we see the stained glass windows and we see the height of the ceiling, do we not, are we not reminded of the grandeur of God, of how small we are and how big God is? And in that sense, we are awestruck. And she writes that when we are awestruck, there is a vanishing self at that point. We are folded into a grander story. I find that helpful. We're all looking for that but we don't want to disappear. We want to know that we matter, but we want to be folded into something bigger and better and more glorious than our own little sphere. I find it helpful at that point. Ecclesiastes wants us to be in awe of God, to fear Him, to recognize who He is. Now, the really interesting thing is, is that the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is actually the beginning of Proverbs. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of the godly life. So, if the project of Ecclesiastes has been to live life under the sun is hevel, you cannot grasp meaning, you cannot get on top of it, therefore fear God. It's like the one who's giving us the epilogue here is inviting that son to therefore enter into something bigger, to fear God and to go from there onwards. It's like Ecclesiastes has reminded us that for as much as we make God in our image, we will not find meaning in this world. For as much as we make God in our image, we will not find meaning in this world. We will only find meaning find bedrock, find refuge in the God of the universe, the Creator, the God who is sovereign and in control of every aspect, and the God who is judge, who will look at every deed and right every wrong, even as we're swept up into that. God is God. As I said, it's easy to wield a sense of fear. So, at this moment, I just want to explore how fear works in us because 
when it comes to fear, it's a contested space in our heart. I mean, think about all the things that drive us, the fear of others, the fear of missing out, the fear of losing things, losing power and wealth. I went back to a book of mine that I love and I've read it a few times now, written by Ed Welch, who's a a Christian counsellor. He wrote a little book called, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And in the first half of the book, he describes us as leaky love tanks. And it sounds a bit corny, I know, but what what he's getting at is that, that we constantly leak and we want to be filling up our leaky love tank with all kinds of things. For instance, the affirmation of others. I am leaking and I'm half full and I need the affirmation of others to fill up that love tank. But what happens when you need to fill yourself up like that is you need it and you crave it and you start seeking after it and you start fearing not getting it. And at that point, you are controlled by the affirmation of others. That's what happens when you fear man above fearing God. And that's the premise of his book, that we are constantly leaking and we will not find meaning in this life until we fear God above others. It's an incredible book, worth a read. David Foster Wallace also points out to this. He wrote, he he did a speech a number of years ago and was not a Christian, and yet he was able to identify that if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. That's very Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Or worship power, he says. You will feel weak and afraid and you will need more and more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Or what about distraction? There is so much competing fears in our hearts that in the end, we just want another meme, (laughs) want to scroll through another Facebook post. Or as I read this week, uh, by the age of 21, most American boys have played 10,000 hours of video games. 10,000 hours. You could be an expert in anything, they tell us, in 10,000 hours. And you've mastered level four of of Call of Duty. What a waste of time. Hevel. (laughs) What are your driving fears? Is that a terrifying prospect to even ask that question? What are your driving fears? When an organization has gone a little bit astray, say it's possible to do a bit of a, uh, an autopsy and look at kind of recent decisions that have been made as an organization and to sort of unpack what were the driving goals and values and aspirations that kind of made the decision the way it was. And you can kind of go back and you can see, actually, there were unarticulated values at work. I wonder if the same thing is true for us. We might kind of have mission statements kind of and and kind of verbalize things, but then underneath that, there are actually unarticulated values and fears that are really driving us. I want you to be curious about those. Why did I get so anxious about that? Why did I react like that? Why was I so scared about that? I want you to understand the fears that are in your heart, that you might be able to bring them before the fear of the Lord and have the fear of the Lord flood out every other fear. Easier said than done, perhaps, but that's the journey of discipleship. And as we try and make sense of this, I come back to a chapter from Isaiah that has always really been so beautiful and vivid to me. It's Isaiah chapter 6, where the great prophet Isaiah 
has a vision of going into the temple of the living God. And when he goes into the temple, he sees the grandeur of God, how big God is. And that the train of his robe fills and flows out the temple stairs. There is smoke that fills and the temple is trembling as much as Isaiah is. And there are angels uh, around God. They are saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it is entirely appropriate for Isaiah at that point to be terrified. He is God. And as God calls him to be his prophet, he says, woe to me. I have unclean lips, again, entirely appropriate before the living God. But this is the thing, the next bit is not of Isaiah, but of God. For God sends an angel uh, in this vision to bring a coal onto Isaiah's lips and to clean him, to draw Isaiah closer, to affirm him, to drive out fear, that he might be brought into the presence of God and participate in God's plan. Surely this is a foreshadowing of Jesus, who makes the bigness of God known to us, that we might be cleansed, that we might be atoned for, that we might be drawn into the presence of God. For as much as we are to fear him, he says, do not be afraid, as he draws us to himself. But don't let the incarnation of the Son, make you think that God has become smaller. For God is God. It's just that He's invited you into His presence as He forgives you. So it is entirely appropriate to be terrified by God, but as you're invited into His presence because of His mercy, listen to Him as He says, do not be afraid as He forgives you. And as we do these things, we might be more aware of the fears that drive us, that we might be filled even more so with His love. As the second passage was read out to us by Mick, 1 John, perfect fear, perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with judgment. So we're no longer, we no longer need to be terrified that God the judge will see everything in our hearts and condemn us. He will definitely see into your hearts. But we no longer need to fear that He will condemn us because Christ has atoned for us, has forgiven us, has brought us into the very presence of the living God. And yet we also ought to hold God as God. So we are to fear Him in the fullest sense, but not be terrified of condemnation. I think this is the kind of thing that C.S. Lewis was getting at when he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, where Susan says, is he quite safe? That's me, no, let's not do that. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God cannot be domesticated. Jesus is not a bobblehead doll on your dashboard. He is the living God made known to you that as much as we would fear Him, He would draw near to us. And so as you become more aware of the grandeur and bigness of God, and as you become more aware of the fears that drive you, 
Would you let a righteous and holy fear of God drive out every other fear in you? As I think about Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to ask you to sort of consider how Ecclesiastes has brought you into an awareness of how you respond to the frailties of this world, your own failures. I think of three people in my life who've kind of lived out different aspects of the things that the Ecclesiastes teacher has has brought to our attention. And these three particular people that have come to mind have been so driven by a fear of God that they are no longer driven by fears of other things. And they've got more to say than just Hevel and Carpe Diem because they have the fear of God in them that has enabled them to live out Christ. I think of, I think of a guy who I knew in my previous church who was a partner in a very prestigious law firm and was very wealthy. And so the Ecclesiastes teacher would say to that man, well, uh, riches are good, but they're probably going to fall apart on you through some misfortune, or all that you earn will kind of go on to someone else and they might be foolish with that, and so just live it up. But this man has found a third way in the fear of God. And what particularly comes to mind as I think about this man is as he drives uh, from Roseville to, uh, to his workplace, he would park his car underneath uh, the building of, of a large Skyrise uh, international law firm and he would park next to the Porsches and the BMWs and the Audis, and people would say to him, why are you driving that Mitsubishi thing? And it's like that question didn't even register for him, because he was not fearful of what others would think of him. He was not fearful of losing his wealth. He was wise, but he wasn't fearful in the sense of being driven by that. He was playing out an entirely different narrative, and that was the fear of God. And what that meant for him is that he used his money for extraordinary generosity to bless others, not just to carpe diem. The fear of God for this man was greater than the fear of losing wealth, greater than the fear of losing notoriety and symbols of power. I love it. When I think of death, I visited a couple this week where the woman had lost her father recently. And as I sat with them and we shared stories, it was so clear that there was more going on than the fear of death, more going on than just, well, we all reach that common destiny in the end, and so therefore I might as well live it up now. What I saw in this couple was joy, and that joy was grounded in the hope of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, because they knew that they would see their Father again in eternity. And what also stood out to me was an extraordinary gratitude a gratitude for the way that this father had blessed them with faith and what that meant, had discipled them and so many around them. And so over a fear of death was a fear of God and a thankfulness that God has raised Jesus from the dead. When I think about the topic of time, I think about someone who I was counselling at the beginning of this year uh, who before the year really got rolling already felt like this was not their time. And they were wrestling with, why God, are things not working out for me? I've worked so hard for you. Why is this not my time? And for all the agitations and frustrations, that person was able to allow those 
those fears to roll into a fear of God. I don't understand why this is not my time, but I know that you are in control. And out of that, that trust, out of that acknowledgement, out come all these inner fears, these fears of not being significant, these fears of not being affirmed. And through confession, repentance, and an openness under the fear of God, that person is still growing, is being transformed in the radical grace of God because they fear God above all things, above all others. Now, whatever this year throws at you, whatever it has thrown at you, God is bigger. I want you to believe that in your heart of hearts. And if, as you realize that you're driven by other fears, I want you to kind of process that and explore the gospel to see if God really is bigger than those fears. But I believe that God is bigger, that He is greater, and that He's shown that to me in His love for me that, that pushes out all terror that I might fear Him above all other things. Let me pray. It's a simple prayer. Father, turn my fears into faith. May Your love for me be enough that I would seek You above all other things. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.